All right, Bokatov. All right. So, um, all right, so today's daf is Lamed Zion, 37, and we are continuing with the Mishnah, which is a, a, a Mishnah that sort of says, these are the things that are Asr Nishim Shavuot. So it's a very interesting category of Shavuot, which we tend to apply pretty much universally to, um, to Isra Drabanan on Shabbos and Yantav, but the Mishnah um, only mentions a small collection of them, and the question is, like, exactly what makes them specific and unique, and we saw that the uh, Bavli yesterday dealt with a couple of these about going up on the tree and riding on an animal and uh, going in the water and, and clapping and dancing and all of the type of a gzerah, lest you come to make a musical instrument, lest you come to break off a branch, um, and as I pointed out, there's no indication that that's the issue in the Mishnah, um, and other the uh, Tosefta and uh, you know and, and the Ushami don't do not frame it as all as a uh, as a gzera. And uh, it seems that what's really going on here, in terms of originally what the conception was in terms of the Mishnah, I'm just repeating what I said yesterday, was that these are things which we might now call uvdu dechol and shvus, meaning uh, preserving the nature of Shabbat. And these are things that much more are weekday type of activities, you know. You get in your car and you drive on the weekday, forgetting the issues of malacha, driving around on your, going around on your horse and on your animal is the type of thing that you do in the weekday. Um, it's, um, you know, clapping and dancing in the original context was doing it out in the field and you were scaring away the birds. So that was tending to your crops. Going up in the tree was things you did when you were cutting down the fruit. So these were basically activities that were very much weekday activities and therefore Asr Misham Shavuot, they were very much business type of activities. But the Bavli, as it does very often, frames things in terms of Gzerah and a safeguard. Um, and I'll just say one se- sentence about that, you know, Tosas therefore classically discusses what's the, how about the fact that we do clap and dance, again, not in the scaring away the birds context, but in like the, you know, shul context or whatever it is, in the simcha context. And Tosas says, well, since the whole thing is Gzerah, lest you come to make a musical instrument or fix a musical instrument, and we nowadays don't trivially fix musical instruments, that Gzerah doesn't apply and therefore we're allowed to do it. And that's not here, it's in other places. Okay. Okay. It's very hard to find here. Uh, it's not here. Uh, that's why it's hard to find. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's on uh, Lamed on Olive. Fine, it's in multiple places. It's not here anyway. Um, so the um, so you know, for some people, that's oh great. So every time the reason doesn't apply, the halacha doesn't apply. Of course, that goes totally against the general principle, which is which was in the beginning of Bates as well. So sometimes halachot are intended in a particular context, and not when that context doesn't apply but normally you need pretty strong evidence to show that that's the case. So it should be noted that Tosus only did this as when he was doing what Tosus usually does, is dealing with the divergence between the actual practice out in the field, um, out in the community, and when that diverged from what the Gemara said, Tosus, rather than saying, oh, everybody is sinning and we have to uh, tell them they're all doing the wrong thing and change what they're doing, Tosus finds a way to reconcile it with the Gemara, to interpret the Gemara in a way that it's not a contradiction. And so one of the ways he uses is this possibility, well, maybe if the reason isn't any relevant, that can explain how we deal with the phenomenon that people are practicing in violation. Maybe this is one of those cases where when the reason goes away, the Gzeirah goes away. But Tosos was only prepared to say that when he had to deal with the facts on the ground that people were not actually abiding by it. And as I mentioned um, before we started, so this becomes the most challenging issue. And another issue that the Bavli translates in terms of a Gzeirah is not taking medicine on Shabbos. 
Um, again, there's no evidence in the earlier sources that the problem with taking medicine was a problem that you'll come to grind the medicine. That's what the Bible says. It makes it a It might just seem that, no, that's just a type of a weak activity, you know, particularly if you're me- taking medicine usually is not just taking pills from a bottle, but going to a healer and having the healer, you know, pre- you know sort of, you know, do some, who knows, magical stuff or not magical herbs or whatever. No, but, but the whole activity, even if it's not about grinding, again, is like going to see a professional on Shabbat and involving yourself in a professional activity on Shabbat, you know, providing medicine and so on. Um, and if you take a look in, in the Gospels, by the way, where you see that Jesus does healing on Shabbat, then the sense you get is that it's intrinsic, and, and the Pharisees are very upset, the sense you get is that intrinsically, that's like the same way riding on an animal. Like, oh, you don't do that on Shabbat. It's like a violation. Uh, but nevertheless, the Bavli frames it as will come to grind. And by framing it as Xera gives the p- opening and the possibility that when that doesn't apply, maybe there's something to talk about. So, for example, since we're talking about Yantiv, we should mention it. On Yantiv, you're allowed to grind spices. So you can grind on Yantiv. So if the whole problem is lest you grind, maybe categorically Yantiv was excluded from the prohibition of taking medicine. And there are actually some postings who say that. The prohibition never applied to Yantiv, categorically. Okay, certainly on Yantiv, can be very lenient. Anyway, um, others want to say, look, nowadays, given that there's an issue of Tsar, and given that there's an issue of that we don't grind our own medicine, maybe this shouldn't apply. Okay, and now it's rare to find a post like that will out and out say it doesn't apply. Because again, the basic assumption is, even when the reason goes away, like we learned at the beginning of Masechet, you know, the prohibition still remains. But because there seems to be this huge divergence between the reason and the prohibition, it leads to Postkin to be more creative in interpreting what exactly are the parameters, like what type of, like some will be very liberal, like for example, if you're chola kol haguf, you're allowed to take medicine. You're only not allowed to take medicine if it's called a michush ba'alma, a little discomfort, because they didn't restrict it for somebody that was chola kol haguf. So then, like a lot of Postkin nowadays, will be very liberal in defining people as holokola gulf in order to allow them to take medicine. Once there's this divergence between the reason and, and the prohibition. But again, the interesting fact is, and with this we'll move on, number one, another example, not on our daf, but another example of how the Bavli is, frames uh, all these things as gzela shema, not as an intrinsic issue. And then number two, how that leads to possible uh, possibilities when those reasons don't apply. That even though there's generally this resistance to saying that things change based on changing reasons, as we saw, every now and then Tosus does it when the practice is in divergence, and it sometimes also can lead Postkim to thinking a little bit more creatively in terms of how to define the parameters once it's being framed in terms of Xera. Yes? Do so people go the other way? Seeing as, well, if it's really intrinsically a problem, not so much the medicine, then it's going to the doctor, then you shouldn't go to the doctor if you're not feeling too well. You know what I mean? Like, you know. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, in a way, by framing it as Xera, it gives more latitude. So, as an intrinsic problem gives a lot less. Yes? Can clean, fix the instrument or tune it and make it appropriate for you? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, you know, would there be considered to be like at least some Durabunum problem of tuning? Um, you know, we, I, I don't know if there's any direct evidence of that. I mean, if it's really considered to be, it gets to a larger question. You know, when is something considered broken and at what stage? If it's a natural thing to have to retune, it would hard to be imagined that that would ever be, that that would be considered a biblical thing. If it's, you know, if it's significantly out of tune, like the whole issue of the knife. At what stage is the knife stopping a clear knot? It's a good question. Let's get back to the Gemara. Okay, three lines from the bottom on Lamed Vav Amad Beth. 
um, the Elohim Mishum Rishus. And the following things are for Rishus, meaning that they're still prohibited as a Shvus, but it's a type of activity that is not um, completely neutral. It's a type of activity that there is. Now, Rishus often means completely discretionary, but it's contrasted to Mitzvah. And actually here what it means is things that there actually is some Mitzvah component to. Maybe it's not an out-and-out Mitzvah, but there is some Mitzvah component to and nevertheless remains forbidden. So what are they? So low Dunim. The first one is you can't sit in a basin. So, again, v'hab mitzvah kavid, what do you mean? Being sitting in a basin is a mitzvah, um, right? I mean, you know, there's all this talking about how you're supposed to judge, v'shafati, you know, you know, v'hein ishu v'hein v'hein v'hein, what is it? No, because actually there's somebody always better to sit in din. So therefore, <laughs> which is an important like thing, like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the die in here. You know, don't think you're doing such a mitzvah. There's other, there are better people to be doing this than you. Um, so therefore, it's not an out-and-out mitzvah. There's a mitzvah element because, you know, yeah, that's why, like, Moshe had the whole system. You don't always go to the best judge. You know, there's other levels of judges as well. But, in many cases, it's not an out-and-out mitzvah because it could always be going to somebody better. Okay, the low mikadshin, and you can't do kiddushin. So, the Gemara says, Vaha mitzvah kavid. Why isn't that called, why is that called a rishos? Call it a mitzvah. So, Gemara says, Tzricha, you need it for a case to ifa isha banim that he already ha- is married and has kids and he's done the mitzvah pruervu. Now, this is quite fascinating, because this makes it sound that the entire mitzvah of getting married is for the aspect of having children. Um, and, you know, it's actually quite an interesting machlokas rishonim, whether there's a mitzvah to get married at all. Um, some rishonim say that there is um, and a mitzvah to get married, but it's basically framed as, it sounds like this in the Rambam and the Miri and other rishonim, that it's a mitzvah to get married, but it's because it enables the mitzvah of Purvu. It's like a hechsher mitzvah to Purvu, which is what this gemara sounds like. Others, like the rush, say it isn't even a mitzvah to get married because you could the uh, inferior person could be Makai and Pruervu out of wedlock. Even if you have kids out of wedlock, you're still Makai and Pruervu. So he says it's not even a mitzvah at all. Okay, now it might not practically, you know, and theoretically you might not need to get married in order to have kids, but hopefully people are having their kids in marriage. And practically, it's certainly the first step to having and raising kids. So, but the Gemara says that, but that, but but if you've already been Yotze Pruervu, there's not a particular mitzvah. Now again, that's a little bit disturbing that the only aspect of the, the value of uh, the, the, you know, the mitzvah of getting married is the idea of having kids. There are Gemaras, and I guess we'll get to them when we get to Nashim, that talk about an intrinsic value of marriage beyond having kids. I mean, how about the Pesukim? L'tov hayot adam levado. You know, adam sheshar below ish, again, all very from the male perspective. Shora below tova, below simcha, below, you know, below kapara, you know, speaks about the intrinsic value of being married, but what the Gemara is saying is it might not technically be a mitzvah. Um, and that's also important, right? Like, is the, is a person obligated? A person has had kids. Is what he gets divorced? His wife dies. Does he have to feel like again, from the male perspective, I'm talking now? Oh, now I have to get married. There's a mitzvah to get married, so I can't stay single. You know, so it's you know, so saying it's not a mitzvah on the one hand seems to devalue it, but on the other hand, also says that it's not a strict obligation beyond the strict obligation to have kids. Okay, so and there are other gemaras that speak about its value. So here the gemara does say we, it's in the context where there's not a mitzvah element because you were already Yotzei Puravu. By the way, Tosus raises, totally from the man's perspective, by the way, Tosus raises the question, the assumption here when the Gemara says, isn't it a mitzvah, isn't it a mitzvah, is just a 
category, it's just a question of how it was labeled. Why is it labeled in the Rishus column? Why not label it in the Mitzvah column? Right. But Tosa suggests another read. And Tosa suggests, if this were actually a Mitzvah, it should be allowed on Shabbos and Yantav. And Tosa raises the possibility that somebody who has not yet, a man who has not yet had kids, could actually get married on Shabbos and Yantav. When it becomes a Mitzvah, it actually will become allowed. Um, and that's the Gemara's question. It should be a Mitzvah, it should be allowed. Now again, that's very much not shot because the next category in the Mishnah are things that are mitzvahs and are also forbidden. So it's a hard read of this of this Gemara, but it is interesting that Tosus raises that possibility. Yes. Question: Do the Rishonim also raise the utilitarian reason for getting married, the stability of society? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of those reasons we'll see. There's again a famous sugyot about that in Yevamot that talk about reasons, and that those reasons come up. So, yeah. And if you well. put something in the mitzvah category such that it automatically becomes mutar, it could be a good read because then all you have to do is list the exceptions to that. Right. Yeah, but then the mission should have been more explicit, like, you know, and again, the sec- the last part of the mission has be the following things are mitzvahs, right. and are also forbidden Misham Shavuos, so, uh, yeah, but yeah. It, it is fascinating, Tosus in general often quotes Rabbein Tom as trying to give a greater allowance to get married when the Gemara thinks you're not, like about even getting married when the woman is in Avelos, because, uh, you know, because, um, you know, cause, or, or, or I say, I'm trying to remember the case, so the woman was in Avelos, or the man was in Avelos. Well, not Shemika Menuach, because again the need to take care of the kids and the need to have kids and whatever so it's actually interesting it probably speaks to the realities I'm trying to remember the exact toast but anyway it probably speaks to the realities of you know of often um, uh, people succumbing to you know death and violence in the middle ages and uh, the importance of uh, making sure that everybody gets married when they need to be getting mm-hmm. married yeah I was going to say before was that I don't know if the Gemara can infer anything from here about not being a mitzvah because it didn't say like let's say she was never married no no no, no. the mitzvah for Ravu is, is on the man at least that's that's the conclusion of the Gemara and Yavamas. Okay, let's take a look. Yeah, I, I think it's a Gemara's assumption here. What? It's a problem because what the Gemara is saying is that it's a little less of a mitzvah than when you already have children. Right. So, I mean, that implies, A, that it's a mitzvah in general. Right. Right, right. Dove makes a good point, which is that Rishus doesn't mean there's no mitzvah at all. It means that it's not as much of a mitzvah. Right, thank you. That's important. Right. Right. So, right. There still is an element. Right, thank you. So, yeah, it's like second line from Rashi. You mean mitzvah ika. But of course, for Rashi, the Ksas Mitzvah is the value of anything more than the minimum kids. So Rashi still sees the Ksas Mitzvah in terms of the kids, except having more than the minimum. But you're absolutely correct that the idea of Rashus does not mean non, you know, not at all a Mitzvah. It just means that it's a, not as much of a Mitzvah as, uh, as other things. Okay, so now let's continue. You don't do Chalitza and Yibam. But Mitzvah Kavit, what do you mean? It's a Mitzvah to do Yibam or Chalitza. I mean, question which one comes first. But no, sort of like the answer before by the uh, by the basin. There's an older brother, okay, and the older one is supposed to be the one who does the yibum. The first responsibility goes to him. So again, as we're saying, it doesn't mean there's no mitzvah for you, but it's not as much of an out-and-out mitzvah. You're really older, though. All right, fine, yeah. So, but then you'd be in the next category, which is the mitzvah category. The kulu time of my. Now, here again, gets the key line. And why can't you do these things? Kiddushin, yibum, chalitza, din. 
Because you'll write things down. You have a court case, you have to keep notes. You're getting married, you want to write the specifics, and you want to write the, uh, you know, and you want to write the deals and the financial arrangements. You're doing Yibam and Chalit also, you want to, you know, Tim, you want to make a record of it. So again, not because this thing is intrinsically transactional or status change. Again, not because there's an intrinsic sense that these are things that don't happen on Shabbos and Yantav. Again, being framed as a Xera. Okay. I know, so that's my point. Why didn't they just say intrinsically? It's a type of a transactional type of a thing, or, you know, even though it's interpersonal and it's status or whatever, and that itself makes it inappropriate. Move to the whole, shvus. But again, it's the Bavli's insistence on framing this as a gzera. Okay, and we'll see that now. The, the, the possibility of an intrinsic problem is going to come up in a minute. Okay, so, um, you don't do, you don't sanctify things, and marikin, and other ways of sanctifying things. Lest it lead to business. Now, why? Because this is, again, very transactional and changing possession of the objects. Now, as opposed to like those mm-hmm. said before, what about like making a, you know, making a pledge in shul isn't changing possession of the object, but actually giving something over to Ekdash is. Now, why is Mekah a problem? So if you look at Rashi, Rashi gives two reasons, and this exactly plays out on the tension we've been talking about, or the two possibilities we've been talking about. So Rashi, four lines down in the narrow lines, the Shumekah Humemkar says, um... You take it out of your possession into, into the base of Mikdash's possession. Because he says you're not supposed to pursue your uh, pursuits on Shabbos. So meaning, it's business activity. So it's intrinsically problematic. You don't have to make it exact. It's intrinsically problematic. Inam, he says Rashi, or it's a you'll come to write things down. So if Mekka is itself a so this is a no, it's all part of Mekka So again, this is saying exactly this question. Is this thing intrinsically problematic? It's business-like, and it's not, therefore intrinsically you don't do it on Shabbos, or is the whole thing just a safeguard to writing things right. down and to doing a malachah. Right. Yeah. Why don't they use the language of kinyan? Or is these the reasons why you don't make a kinyan on Shabbos? Also, you come to Shabbos, you come and write it down. You come right. So, so basically, but because kinyaning you can do under certain circumstances, business is much more absolutely forbidden. Like you can give gifts on Yantiv in particular. You can give right. gifts on Shabbos if you're going to you do it with Sarah Shabbos. Mecca Chumemka. So it's not just possession itself, right? But kinyan is under certain uh, under other circumstances. Kinyan is part of the Mecca Chumemka. Yes. Very quickly, though, it really seems to me that if you're doing an appeal, it completely seems to be a problem. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but if part of the reason is also mitzvah chesed chavadover then it has the, that intrinsic problem. But then it has the exemption of chesed shemayim, right? So, so then, then you could say, yeah, but then you can say kiddushin and yibum is also chesed shemayim in a certain sense. So, but yeah, but part of that is also because you know what makes it business-like as opposed to no, this is actually very religious activity. It's chesed yeah, shemayim. One thing is, you can still be worried. You can still be religiously oriented, but you still have another reason. It's shemayim right? You want to write down how much this guy. Right, right. It's true. It's true. We frame that, but but that's not actual. That's not an actual change possession. That's just a play. Okay. Anyway, but you're right. I mean, concerns of Shemi Yichtov are pretty reasonable in that circumstance. And shows come up with creative ways of handling it with little paper clips or whatnot. Let's keep on going. Okay. So it says like this: the lomag being the lomag being chumas and so You don't take chumas and Again, that's a mitzvah, but it's not allowed. Pshita, obvious. 
Oh, so obvious, but okay, obvious, because again, maybe there's some sense of um, fixing something, and that's an idea like we saw before about taking things to the mikvah, you're changing status, you're fixing it, it's like making something on Shabbos and Yantav. By the way, that's a final apshita, presumably because it's intrinsically a problem, not a gzera, right? So that's the, the very same pshita means it's like, it's self-obvious, that, you know, it's self-evident that that's going to be a problem, presumably again, not because of a gzera. Okay, so the Gemara says like this, so, no, the Kiddush is, you can't even separate the Chumash and Maishas and give it to the Kohen. If you're giving it to the Kohen, then it's not so much like you're coming to fix your food, and you're doing something which is fixing and changing on Shabbos. You're coming to give a gift to the Kohen, and we know you can give gifts of food to people on Yontif. Um, even on Shabbos, but certainly on Yontif, we've been discussing it, so maybe that reframes what's happening. So, okay, so that's why even so, it remains forbidden. Now, this thing that is forbidden is only fruit, this is now we're talking on Yantav, that was tevil the day before. Things that become tevil today, what can becomes tevil today? I mean, te- that comes through, you know, making it into, like, uh, doing the, um, you know, processing it, which should have happened, can't happen on Yantav. No, there's one thing that can become tevil on Yantav. Kigon, Isa lafrusha minichala. On Yantav, you can make fresh bread. Not on Shabbos, but on Yantav. So you've made your fresh bread on Yantav, and you made your dough, and now you have to take chala. That, mafrishim viyavinu lekohen, that you can take it and give it to the kohen. Now, uh, two things. Why? Number one is it falls under the he- ochal nefesh heter. If you can actually make the chala, we're going to allow you to be mafrish, and you can make the bread, we're going to allow you to be mafrish chala, because that's again the heter, the ochal nefesh allowance. Um, and, but what's interesting to also note is the Gemara seems to point out the avin and the kohen. Don't just be mafish for chala. It seems to be the point of the Gemara. Don't just be mafish for chala and put it aside. Give it to the Kohen because that makes it look also a little bit more kosher. That makes it look like it's about giving it to the Kohen, not about fixing the chala. That seems to be what the Gemara is saying, although the halacha, um, the postkim do not underscore the, the need to give it to the Kohen because now you have, you have the reality nowadays, but chala's chutzlaret. Chala's chutzlaret isn't given to the Kohen, and nevertheless, you can be mafish chala on yantav for dough that you made on yantav. Okay? But here it does say, yavin the Kohen, which the Gemara said before, makes it better. Okay, the honey nearly, okay, the honey, now, now the Gemara goes back. To the whole list, the I don't understand why it's called that middle category rishus. Rishus means to sound like it's not problematic. It's a completely, you know, optional or quasi mitzvah thing. But the whole point is, is that there are Shabbos prohibitions around it. And how about the last category? What do you mean calling them mitzvah, not calling them rishus? The whole reason they're a problem is because they're also a shvus. There are also some of these rabbinic restrictions. So the Gemara says, I'm Rav Yitzhak, lo mi bayakam. No, no, here's how you have to read the Mishnah. Everything is a shvus. But lo mi shvus great it It goes without saying you can't do things which are just a shvus, only problematic and have no redeeming qualities to usur, that that clearly is forbidden. El afilu shvus dirashos. When it calls the second category shvus, doesn't mean it's not a shvus. Everything is a shvus. But even things that are a shvus that are also have a rishus component, which means also have some type of a quasi mitzvah component. No mi even those are forbidden. So lo mi shvus dirashos tasar, not only things with a quasi mitzvah component, even things that are shvus that have that are adult mitzvah, even that is also, and that clearly is the pshat of the Mishnah. Okay, so we went through the whole list, explained what the reasons are. Mostly, we explained that they were gzeras. One or two might not be gzeras. Mecha chumemkar, although mecha chumemkar wasn't listed. 
said, Mishum Mekachum Memkar. So that should be noted. That when the Gemara says, you don't get, you know, you don't sanctify and whatever, Mishum Mekachum Memkar still made it a Gzeira. A Gzeira to something which might be intrinsically Yasser Mekachum Memkar. Okay? So even there, it was still working in the Gzeira category. The one case where maybe it wasn't working in the Gzeira category was the separating of Trumas and Mises. Okay, the last line says, all of these are Yantav, Kavachom, Rebbe Shabbos. There's no difference between Yantav and Shabbos, Ela Ochom Nefesh. Kolele B'yantav Amru. All these were said by Yantav. Vaminu asked, the Gemara asked you, we have our previous Mishnah. Mashilin Derech Arubot, Aruba B'yantav, Avoblo B'Shabbos. You can lower the fruit down the skylight on Yantav and not on Shabbos. So, look, there's a difference that's not related to Ochel Nefesh, a difference on a Durabanan, okay? So, there are differences at, at Durabanan levels between Yantav and Shabbos. I mean, we've seen a lot of differences, okay? But this difference is maybe not immediately in the context of food preparation, although it is about saving food from, but again, that's more about Hefseid. Rashi underscored it in yesterday's Daf that you're not going to eat the food today, so it's not about eating food. And nevertheless, we were more lenient, we said explicitly in the mission that this allowance is going to be a Yantav allowance, it's not a Shabbos allowance. So you see there are differences that aren't limited to Ochel Nefesh. So Amr of Yosef, Lokash, it's not difficult. There's a debate between Rebbe and Rebbe Yoshua whether you give people more latitude on Yantiv in order to uh, save things from, uh, in, for Hesed reasons. To Tanya, Tanya Brisa. You have a mother and a baby calf that, that fell into a well. Okay? And you can't have both of them today because there's a prohibition to slaughter the Oso Vespino. So, but you want to bring them both out of the well, but you can't claim that it's both for food purposes because there's no way you can eat both. Not only you, no way anybody can eat, can eat, you know, no way you can even divide it between another person. So what do you do? You bring up the first one and you say, I'm going to, I'm going to shecht the, uh, mother cow. And you bring up the mother cow and then you say, and then you have to shecht it. Because, you know, you can only bring up the one you're going to eat. And the second one, you have to lower down food where it is, but you're not allowed to bring it out of the well. That would be too much tircha or whatever on Yantav. Today, so that you can try to do what you need to so it doesn't die. Rabbi Yoshua says, no, i got a better solution. You bring up the first one, you say you're going to shecht it, and then after it gets out of the well, you say, you know what, I changed my mind. This one doesn't look a little scrawny. I think I'm going to eat the second one. And then you bring out the second one to eat it. And now you're not even restricted to eat the second one. You could change your mind again. You can shecht with everyone you want. So you do a little trick that allows you to take both of them out of the well. So what the Gemara says is, Rabbi Yoshua is um, who gives you more latitude to do things to prevent them from getting de- destroyed. Also, it's a case of animals, and there's a tsar balechayim issue, but presumably also to allow it to you know to prevent things from getting destroyed. He was the one in the previous Mishnah that let you lower the fruit down the skylight. Our Mishnah that says there are no differences and don't have extra allowances for saving things from being destroyed. That would be Rabbi Eliezer who had no extra allowances. So the says, Amalei Abaye. So Abaye said back, Mimai. Who says it's the same issue? Maybe Rabbi Eliezer was strict there because he figured, look, you can save the animal even without taking it out of the well. You can lower down food. Amalei by the fruit that's rotting on the roof, or it's about to rain, or whatever the case is, the low Parnasa, that there's no way to protect it unless you actually lower it down the skylight. Lo, he would not restrict it. Maybe he'd let you do the case of the root, of the fruit on the roof. Inami, or say the opposite. Why does Rabbi Yeshua let you bring them both out of the well? Because you can the trick. You can make it look as though each one you're doing for the sake of eating. 
Here, there's no way you can trick. It's clear that you're not going to be eating, you know, a thousand pounds of, uh, of, of dried out grapes or whatever it is, or dried out, you know, of, of drying grapes, of drying raisins. So, well, maybe he wouldn't allow you. So there's no clear linking of this debate to the previous Mishnah, saying the previous Mishnah is not Divrei Hakol. And we still have something that's allowed on Yantav that's not allowed on Shabbat, that's not related directly to eating food. So the Gemara says, Ella, okay. Ella, Amarapapa, Lokasha. Here, you're right. It is, again, it's debated. And the, these two Mishnayot are going like different opinions. Habit Shammai, Habit Hillel. And it's the Beit Shammai, Beit Hill debate. Nah, we turn to Mishnah. Remember, has all these restrictions on carrying, and Beitilo does not. Now, what does this have to do with the Mishnah about lowering fruit? So the Gemara is about to ask, but I want to stop for a minute and say, and ask, tell you Tosus' question. Tosus says, what do you mean there's no difference between Shabbos and Yantav except for food-related issues? How about carrying? Right? You're allowed to carry on Yantav. You're allowed to carry on Shabbos. So one answer could be, yeah, but carrying derives from an allowance about food-related issues. Right? Because carrying is seen as connected to food and whatever, and mitok, and however the explanation goes. Tosus says another answer, which is maybe a variation of the same. Clearly, at the biblical level, it's shocking. At the biblical level, there are more differences than just food. There's also carrying, there's also making fires, but the point is, here, the context of this mission is rabbinic. So, we're focusing on the issue of the implication that there are no rabbinic differences between Shabbos and Yantif. Uh, Biblical, maybe there are. More, you know, things that are food and even related to food, like carrying in a fire. But the question is, no rabbinic differences, and in a previous mission, we saw a rabbinic difference. So then the question becomes, how does this relate to Beit Shammai about caring? What does it have to do with about dumping your food down the skylight? So the Gemara says, so, so maybe it's not related. They're talking about carrying. Carrying, they, they put restrictions on. Moving things around, like moving the fruit and dumping it down the uh, skylight, you know, could all be a Rosh your rooftop. So why would they have restrictions? How do you know they'd be more restrictive? Lo, maybe they would not be more restrictive. One says, no. Atu, tiltu, lapsor, chasahu. One says, no, because moving things is really the first step in carrying them. There's your slippery slope. Now, what does that mean? So, many of you shown him understand that this phrase, tiltu, is referring to muktzah. And understand that what it's saying is that one of the reasons that you're not allowed to move muktza is because if you randomly move objects around without any sense of restriction, then it leads to you not thinking and taking objects out of your house and things to you leading leads to carrying. So that one of the main problems of muktza is that you learn a certain guardedness related to the movement of objects, which leads to, you know, help making sure you don't accidentally carry. And therefore, Beit Shammai, who has more problems of carrying on Yantav, would have more problems of Muktzah, and Beit Hillel would have less problems of Muktzah. Fine. But until now, we've been assuming that the case in our Mishnah about the stuff on the roof wasn't Muktzah. Remember yesterday's staff, the whole assumption was covering it because it's not Muktzah. And the whole question is, if it is Muktzah, can you cover it? But the whole assumption was that the whole Mishnah was dealing with that it wasn't Muktzah. So that's very difficult. And, what you, and Rashi constantly said the problem was just Tircha. So then what you have to say is that even in a non-Muksa area, which makes a certain sense, Beit Shammai, if they're concerned about carrying, doesn't want you to do too much schlepping. Tilta just means schlepping. Too much schlepping leads to carrying, even if it's not Muksa. So therefore, it's reasonable to say that the previous Mishnah was a Beit which is not so restrictive when it comes to Muksa, not so restrictive when it comes to schlepping. And this Mishnah that says there are no differences, so you, even in terms of putting the fruit down the skylight, 
that would be Beishamai, he was more restrictive in terms of areas of muktan and schlepping and would not let you dump the fruit down the skylight. Now I have to tell you, it is very bizarre because it makes it sound like the only difference that you can find between Shabbos and Yantav outside of cooking issues, the only Jerabanan difference is this one case here about, you know, about dumping the food down the skylight. I mean, yesterday's daf was almost like a complete contradiction of this. You remember yesterday's daf when they asked, what about this issue about Shabbos, four and five kupot, as opposed to Yantiv? Well, maybe Yantiv will be more machmir because Asi Bay, or maybe Yantiv will be more lenient because Yantiv is more kal. It set up an entire system in which we acknowledge that there will be different restrictions on Shabbos and Yantiv, even in Durabanan areas, even not related to Ochel Nefesh. So I really don't know how the Gemara here has solved the problem. It only addressed its attention to one Mishnah. There seems to be a lot more you could be looking at. Okay, but anyway, so that is the issue here about Shavuos, a very important central category of Shavuos, and uh, the way the Gemara consistently, maybe with the one exception of Trumas and Maishas, frames it around Gzera issues. You don't have to connect uh, Tiltul as schlepping to, um, to the first step in Hotzah. It could be Mechazeh uh, Uzzah that's not what the Gemara says. The Gemara wants to make it tied to Beit Hillel Beit Shammai. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I know, I know. Yeah. Yesterday we didn't mention Hotza at all. Exactly. Okay. Next mission. Now we get to a, a, a new concept, which is going to be a dominant concept until the end of the Masechet. Now, this is an issue of Tchumim. You have a Tchum. You can only go 2,000 Amot, right, from your city, from the, from the, uh, from the uh, uh, edges of your city in all directions. Unless you make an Erev. And if you make your Erev, uh, an Erev Tchumim, then it adds, that, you, know, can add, you put uh, uh, something that designates where you're starting Shabbos outside your city, or Yantav, and then it gives you more distance in one direction and takes it away from the other direction. This mission introduces the idea that it's not just where you can go, but where your objects can go. And the relevance is, is that, well, what do I care where my objects can go if, I, if they're not going with me? Well, let's say somebody else wants to use them on Yantav. Can you lend somebody your... Uh, you know, your, I don't know, your, your dishes, um, if that person is going to take them to a place which is outside, in his tchum, but outside of your tchum. And the answer is no, they are restricted with this, they are limited to the same tchum as you are. It goes like the legs of the owner. By the way, this does raise a fascinating question, which I will just uh, put to you without answering it, because I would have to look it up, I don't know the answer off the top of my head, which is, let's say you're out of town. Right, I'm going to be in, I'm going to Hawaii for Pesach. Okay, so, and you say, can I go ahead and uh, use your, uh, you know, use your house? You know, I put some guests in your house. Can I go ahead and, you know, use your blankets and whatever? Sure, go ahead, no problem. Well, I don't get it. It's outside of my tchum. I'm in Hawaii. So, so does that mean that you can't move anything from my house because it's already outside of my tchum? So it's an interesting question, right? Because the house there is basic. Yes. It's, so it's not, conceptually, it sounds like it's related to the famous machloket about shvitat kelim. Well, yes. It's an interesting, interesting. The street is Kalim looking about what? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Let's we'll see what it's based on. But anyway, but um, but you know, I, the question I'm raising is in a context where fundamentally the Kalim are already disassociated from you, right? As opposed to fundamentally, I start with my Kalim and I can take them in this direction and I can't take them in that direction. That's the case, you know, of the Mishnah. But interesting to think about the scenario I just mentioned. 
question. So, Habeima Vekelem Keragli Habelim goes like where the owner goes. Hamosa Behemta leaves no Oluroe. You give your animal to be shepherded to your son or to a shepherd, and they have their Erev takes them in an, in an opposite direction outside of your Erev. Habeima Vekeragli Habelim goes by you, goes by the owner, and they can't take your sheep outside of what would be your Erev. Let's say there are brothers that have an estate that they have not yet divided. Okay, now some of the vessels maybe they have designated is really for the use of one person. Even though we all share the estate, you get to drive the pickup truck, I do this, whatever it is. Okay, in that case, even though maybe he doesn't own it, in a legal sense, distinct from the other brothers, it's still part of the estate, since it's designated for him, it follows him. The she'en yuchadim, and things that are equally, you know, part of the undifferentiated estate, those are limited to the place where everybody can go. Meaning, it only goes by the intersection of everybody's tchum. So, if you, I'll try to describe this visually, I don't have a whiteboard, okay? If, let's say, right, let's say, here, imagine that the city is in the middle of these two, Right? So, therefore, and this is 2,000 amot in each direction. But I make my Erev over here. So, therefore, I can travel more in this direction, right? Because I'm sort of officially starting here, but less in that direction. You make your Erev over there. So, you can travel. So, then there could be a case where, our, well, actually, this would be the most extreme case, okay, where the Erevs are completely don't overlap. But there could be a case where there is some overlap, right? I go 1,500 amos, uh, 3,500 amos in one direction and 500 in the other. You go 3,500 in that direction, five, anyway, and that there could be, you know, a thousand that's overlapped in the middle. So if we're sharing objects, the shared objects can only go in that overlapped area between those two, like Venn diagrams, between those two, um, you know, uh, areas. Exactly, and we're going to get to that, exactly. So it sounds like this. Um, so if you borrow something, again, this is underscoring the point that it's not about ownership, it's more about under whose sort of control and use it is. So if you borrow something on Erev Yantav, so when Yantav begins, because Tchumim are defined when Yantav begins, you know, so then then it goes by the borrowers, because it was, his, it was under his control when Yantav began. Yantav, if you borrowed it on Yantav, it goes by the lender, because when Yantav began, it was under the control of the lender. Okay? So, maybe my example, when I call you up before Yantav and I say, can I use your, uh, you know, can I use your blankets or whatever, so maybe I'm already a showel, because we made, even if I didn't, that's another question also. When do I become a showel? Only when I take possession of the Kli? When, when you agree to let yeah. me use it? Yeah. We'll see some of that in the Gemara. A woman who's making dough, and she's got the uh, flour, but she had to borrow salt or water um, or spices. So then this flour, is, dough, is owned jointly, is the, you know, has both people's uh, ownership. So then it goes like both of theirs. Okay, because it has in it stuff that was defined by a different owner. So even though when I lend you it, I don't now cannot say, give me back my spices that are in the dough. I don't right now have an ownership of the dough. Okay, you'll just have to, after you have to pay me back with other spices. But nevertheless, this dough contains something whose tchum, even though I lent it to you on Yantav and it became yours on Yantav, but the tchum was already defined when Yantav began. And it's the part of the tchum here. 
here is pointing in the other direction. All right. So again, you understand the scenario. Right? This woman borrows it, so she takes possession on Yantiv. The dough is fully owned by her, but it contains spices that have a different chum because when Yantiv began, they were owned by somebody else. All right. Um, so harei with raglei shehem. Reb Yudah poter says no. Water is not included in being limited by tchum. Water is seen as insubstantial. Now, really, water is insubstantial. I mean, wa- well, you do make a bracha on water. Water was like is pretty much necessary for life. I mean, so much abrasion is about wells and water and so on. But the point is, is that you don't see its presence in the dough. Okay. So spices and salt you taste. Maybe you even see if it's thick salt. We'll talk about that. Water you do not see and you don't sense its presence in the dough. So the dough is no longer, it loses the sense of that there's water in the dough. And therefore it becomes sort of invisible. Yes? Could you clarify something very basic? I mean, today I saw that people will walk from here to yeah. down to Manhattan, you know, yeah. the Because when you draw the tchum around the city, you take the outer limits, the outer, like, inhabited places within the city of continuous thing, and then you make a rectangle around it Based on the based on the four corners of the compass, the mo- right. southernmost, right. you know, easternmost. So right. first of all, you, so first of all, that and then once you do that, for example, for Manhattan or the Bronx, it'll wind up overlapping with Manhattan or with New Jersey. And once that square overlaps with another city square, they all become part of the I same thing. Not outside of the city. It's not how far you walk, it's how far you walk outside of the city. Yeah, that was okay. The all right. Okay. Gemara. Masnitsin, our Mishnah, Delokrev Not like Rebbe Turn the Omer. And here's a similar example. When is it considered to be under your control? Again, it's not about strict uh, legal possession. So you purchased it, Yantav, maybe you paid the money, even though you didn't take possession of the animal, which, by the way, is the technical act needed for legal ownership. Yeah. Nevertheless, you're already considered the owner, and when, for, for these purposes of tchum, and it follows your tchum, you the purchaser's tchum, because you already had done the transaction on Erev Yantav. Again, raises interesting questions for the case of borrowing. You get permission to take something and borrow something, Erev Yantav. You only take possession on Yantav. Based on this, it could very well be that it's already considered under your control because when Yantu began, you already had the right to borrow. Here, you've already done the actual purchase. So that's point number one. You actually sort of transacted it even though you haven't fully finalized it. Okay, that's number one. We're not going to focus on that. The next line. The Hamoser Behema Leroe, if you give over your animal to a shepherd, even though you only gave it to him on Yantiv, it goes by the shepherd. So that's exactly against our Mishnah. Our Mishnah says that it goes by the owner. And this says that it goes by the shepherd, even in the extreme case where you gave it to him on, on Yantiv itself. So, how, so clearly our Mishnah is not this bright up. Mars says no. A few of Rebidosa, our mission is like Rebidosa. The low kasha is not difficult. A difference if there's only one shepherd in the town or if there are two shepherds. Why should it make a difference? Because if there's only one shepherd in the town, then even if you haven't given it to the shepherd when Yantiv began, you're, it's already assumed that you're going to give it to Of course you give it to this shepherd. There's only one shepherd. So therefore, it's already assumed to be intended to be given to him. So it's like it's already under his control. So you see, on the one hand, we say it goes by the owner. On the other hand, we're having a more and more flexible definition of what the owner is. You, don't, you haven't taken possession of the thing you borrowed yet. You haven't, uh, that's what I said. You haven't taken possession of the thing you bought yet. You're still considered the owner. There's a desire, the case in the 
Mishnah, uh, an estate that hasn't been divided, but something is fundamentally used by you. And here we have a case where you haven't even given it to a shepherd, but it's assumed you'll give it to the shepherd, and that's already defined, therefore, by the shepherd. Okay? If there are two shepherds, and you don't know which one you'll give it to, then it's not defined. You would have to give it over on Erev Yontav. Giving it over on Yontav would not work. So the Gemara says, Dikanami, that also can be implied from the Mishnah, Diktani, Libno Oleroeh. It gives an example that there are two people you could give it to. You give it either to your son or to the shepherd. So if there's a choice to be made, then it's not defined when Yantav begins, and then it would be defined by your ownership. But if there's no choice to be made, then when Yantav begins, it's already seen in the possession of the shepherd. Mami Nod, that is a good thing. The Gemara is allowing us to assume who would receive it. But the underlying issue really is when you have that thought, not to whom. No, 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 because in the case of only one shepherd, you didn't need to have a thought. And in the case of two shepherds, even if you had the thought and you had the plan, since it wasn't sort of self-evident, then the plan isn't enough. You'd have to have some actual giving actual. over or, or at least, you know, commitment to give it to him or maybe at least, at least some speech and so on. Okay, just thinking, oh, I was planning on doing it, that would not be enough, okay? If there's only one shepherd, it's like predefined, it's going to him. Two shepherds, you have to actually do it. Now again, what does it mean to do it, to give it over before you understand how much is that verbal, physical? We're already seeing some flexibility with that. Okay, so now the Gemara continues. We go like Rebbe Dosa, that it goes by the shepherd. So the Gemara says, How could Rebbe Yochanan say? That's We go like the Stan Mishnah. But Tanan in our Mishnah says, it doesn't go by the shepherd. And, and it should have quoted the end of it. And it doesn't go by the shepherd, especially, uh, certainly if you give it to the shepherd, Anyantiv. So the says, what's the problem? We already resolved it. Our Mishnah is talking about two shepherds, and Reb Dose is talking about one. Of course, then, so what Reb Yochanan is saying is, when there's only one shepherd, we pass in like, like Reb Dosa, that it's automatically defined by the shepherd. If there's two shepherds, or shepherd and your son, and there's a choice to be made, then it would have to be given over on Erev Yantiv. Okay. Tanarabanan, we talk. Shnaim Shushalu Chaluk Echad B'Shutafut. Two people, and here we're going to get to your case, though. Two people borrowed a, uh, a, a shirt or to, to use in partnership, uh, you know, in partnership. So they're, you're equal borrowers of this shirt. One person wanted to use the shirt to go to the study hall in the morning. And the other one was going to use it on Yantav night, like not mostly Yantav, but Yantav night, to go to a uh, drinking party. Okay, two very different people. You know, it's like it's like Yaakov and Esav. This one is running by Beisam Medrash, the other one is running by something. So what is that? But Beisam It's not a wedding? Uh, yeah, it probably is a wedding, but it can't be a wedding, actually, because it's Yantav. No, it's anyway, no, because if it's Motsa Yantav, Rashi explicitly says Shel Yomtov. Okay, Arvi Shel Yomtov. It's Motsa Yantav, it has no relevance for the status on Yantav. They have to be in partnership of it on Yantav. Okay. Okay. Anyway, let's on just way. move on. Uh, five, let's move on. So, they both want to use it on Yantav, and they have divided up the day, night and day. One person put his Erev in the north, so he can go 2,000 amos to the north, but he, or 4,000 amos to the north, but he can't go any distance to the south. The other one put his Erev in the south. He can go 4,000 amos to the south, but he can't even take one step to the north. So the actual intersection is zero, right? Do you have that scenario? Yeah. The intersection of their Erevs is zero, okay? 
So what's the halacha? They can sort of meet. It's like the north going Zach's and the south going. You ever know the doctor suit? They can. I can meet at the at the edge of my erev, and you can go up to the edge of yours, and we can maybe hand over the suit. But I can't step into your zone, and you can't step into my zone. Our so our zones don't overlap. So what's the halacha? Now you might think, well, what's the problem? They're not using it for the same period of time. Maybe what in, in the daytime it's in the nighttime it's in one zone, and in the daytime it's another. No, you don't divide yuntiv by half of days. Its status has to be defined for the whole day of Yantiv. So that's what it says. So the guy who made the northern one, he can take it to the north only to the extent that the southern guy's Eruv extends to the north. So I gave example extended zero, but maybe there is a thousand ama overlap. So you can take it to the north, but only to the extent of the southern guy's area. <coughs> the one who made it, who, who is going to the south, he can go take it to the south, to only to the extent that the northern guy's area goes into the south. So it has to be the actual overlap of their two zones. If they divided the space, which basically means there's no overlap, this guy's going all the way to the south, and the other all the way to the north, and there's absolutely no overlap. You can't move it. Okay, you cannot take the shirt anywhere. Okay, so you don't say, oh, day and night, let's split it day and night. No, yuntav, its identity of tchumim has to be for the whole day, and there's no overlap, and therefore it cannot be moved. But can't okay. you go to the edge and hand it no. over? No, no, because then you're taking it from one tchum to the next. Right, so you can't, you can't stick your hand into the Exactly. Well. You can stick your hand, you can't transfer the object. The okay, it's the shirt. The shirt zone is, has, okay. you know, has no shared zone. Itmar. Okay. Two people purchased a barrel and a behemoth. Now, before we're talking about behemoth, we're talking about shepherds. But here, the idea of behemoth is to shecht it and eat it. Okay? So, you got a barrel of wine and you've got future steaks. Okay? You got your behemoth and you own it in partnership and you want to divide it on yantav. And, you know, you're going to take half and I'm going to take half and we'll have a very nice yantav meal. Okay? So, but again, um, we, uh, so, so we, we don't have necessarily uh, overlapping tchumim. So what's going to be the story? Uh, is it going to be limited by our shared tchumim? So Ravam or chavit muteret. The chavit, you don't have to worry. That's not limited by your shared tchumim. Each person takes it in their own tchum. But the animal is forbidden. The animal is limited by the overlap of the tchumim. Vashmulam or chavis nam yasura. That even the barrel is forbidden. Now, what's the logic here? So, can you tell me what the logic is by the barrel, why it should not be limited by our, the overlap of the tchumim? We own a shared barrel on Yantav, we, we divide it up, I take half, you take half, and we can say each one can take their half in their own tchum. They don't have to worry about the overlap. You can't tell which half was the other, you can say, I get the front half, you get the back half. Right. Well, yeah, but the opposite, because the barrel, if you can't tell, then it should be limited to both. Right? So you have to say, when we divide the barrel, that shows it's a Brewer case. Right? That shows that that half that I took of the wine was always the half that I was intended for me. So that was never held Bashuta foot. The half I got was the half I always owned. And therefore, it's not Bashuta foot and your half the thing. But by an animal, an animal is less, you know, divisible. So therefore, we might not be able to say Brewer. This was always my half. Let's take a look at what the Gemara says. So, okay. So, so the Gemara says like this. Um, um, uh, okay, Rav. Uh, what is Rav hold? that retroactively we define when once you split it in half, which half was yours? That half was always yours. So Let's say the same about the animal. Those steaks were always yours. The animal was alive when Yant began, but now we shechted it and divided it, and the other steaks were his. The other half of the animal was his, and there was never a joint ownership. 
So therefore, you're not limited. The Ika Savar ain't Brera, and if you hold there's no Brera, that when Yantav began, it was joint, it only got separated on Yantav, so Filu Chavis Nam Yesur, then it should be like Shmuel. Shmuel says, even the barrel of wine, it's limited by the overlap, right? It's forbidden, I mean, it's limited by the overlap, because when Yantav began, it was in owner, it was in partnership, whatever happened later, happened later, and therefore, it's limited to the overlap of the two owners. So how do you understand this difference between the barrel and the animal? So Gemara says, Lo'olam Kasavar Yesh Brera, Rafal there is Brera. And that works for the wine. I get my wine on Yantav. It turns out that was the wine that was always mine. And it's not limited by the other person. So how about the animal? For Shanya Be'ima, the animal is different to Kayanki Tchumim Mehadadi. The Tchumim uh, um, sort of, uh, what's the word, like, uh, um, suckle, um, they've got, uh, you know, sort of derive nu- nutrients from one another. What does that mean? So the way Tosos explains it is the following. Good. Let's say we will say Brayro. And when Yantav comes, let's make it easy. I wind up taking, we check the animal, I wind up taking the front half and you take the back half of the animal. So what was the status? So we'll say retroactively that was always the story when Yantav began. Yantav began, this animal, the front half was mine and the back half was yours. So why are we limited by one another? Because look, because the back half is still deriving some of its sustenance from the front half. And the front half, right, I mean, the blood is running throughout the animal. It's deriving some of its sustenance from the back half. So even if the front half was mine and the back half was yours, my front half has in it something of yours. And your back half has in it something of mine. So it's sort of like the dough that has in it some other component. And therefore, it's going to be limited by you. You know, you know, each half will be limited by the other, by the owner of the other half. The same for the wine. Yeah, that's what I was No, oh, the so wine. Blood How do you separate the wine? It's moving around. But we, if we say that these droplets were the droplets in the barrel that were always mine, we couldn't have identified them. They never got anything when Yosef began. If we could have labeled the droplets that were mine and the droplets that were yours, my droplets never got anything from your droplets. That's for the behemoth. No! Because even if the half is totally mine, while that half is mine and while it's Benashmoshos, it's getting, you know, nutrients and blood and oxygen from your back half. And the same is true about your back half. So it's, they're actually, you know, organically and biologically dependent on one another. So therefore, it's, it's, when Yant, even when Yanta begins and I retroactively see had the front half, it was a front half that had some, some things of yours in it. Okay, so let's take a look. Um, it's not because you can't divide it. You can divide it, but it's still gaining from the other half. Yanki tchumi mehadadi. Amalei Rav Kahana Ravasi Rav. So Rav Kahana Ravasi said to Rav, I don't get it. This idea you have of Yanki Mehadadi. You're not going to be concerned about Muktza, but you are going to be concerned about Tchumim, Shasik Rav. And Rav was silent. So what's concerned about Muktza is it talking about? So Tosa says that, um, he says like this, he says, if you're worried about this invisible thing that's happening, that it's getting nutrients from the back half, heck, Let's say when Yantav is begin. Let's say it's a, it's a microscopic amount fatter today on Yantav than it was when Yantav began, and that microscopic amount that it's fatter is no lud and it's mutsa because it didn't have that extra you know gram of meat on its bones. So obviously we're not going to look at things with a microscope to say that extra gram of meat that grew or between Yantav night and today is mutsa and no lud. So we're also not going to look at this 
you know, blood thing to say that it's a tchumim problem. Okay? That's the analogy. I don't know if it's such a persuasive analogy. Anyway, he says... The word tchumim in Yanke tchumim means not the tchumim we've been talking about. It means the sections of the behemoth. No, no, no. But the section, your animal has its tchum, and my animal has half has its tchum, and the thing that has one tchum is deriving nutrients from the thing that is defined by the other tchum. No, no, no. Tchum meaning labeled for Ruvain's tchum and labeled for Shimon's tchum. Okay? Alright, sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, so the Gemara says like this. Okay, so Shasikrav, he didn't have an answer to that Muk analogy. Now the Gemara says, My Allah, what was the upshot? There is Brera, and both the wine is okay and the animal is okay. If you wind up splitting it on Yantiv, you can't split the day, right? This is in contrast to the shirt. Day and night is still the same undefined, un- undivided shirt. But when you divide the animal and the wine, retroactively, that was always your half. And it's not limited by the other person's tchum. There isn't Brera, and both the wine and the animal are usher, and they're not defined, and they are, are limited to the overlapping of the two tchumim. So, does Rav Hoshea really hold Yesh Brera? That's not. We taught in the Mishnah. Now, we had this whole thing earlier, so I'll do this pretty quickly. Also, it's very late. There's a corpse in the house, and the house has many openings. And so, any exit you'll take the corpse out of is considered like, it's all, like the tomb is already going through that exit. And if you can't identify which is the exit, it's like all of them are potential exits, and the tumor goes through all of them. Kulam Tmeim. Niftach echad mehem, if one of the uh, doors are open, and that's going to be the door now by de- almost by, uh, by, by definition, because it's open, that you'll assume to take the mace out of. Hu tamei, that doorway is tamei. The kul and taurin, the others are taur, because they're not the future exits of the mace. Chishev be'echad mehem, let's say you just intend, you don't actually do an act. You intend to take it out of one door, or even a window, which is the minimum to be considered an exit for the maze. So just planning on doing it defines it as the exit. And that saves the other doorways from being tamay. That's like opening the door. That defines that as the exit, just thinking about it. No. That idea that thinking can define it as the exit is only if it was identified as such before the, the person died. But once the person died and all the exits were potential exits, thinking does not redefine one over the other. Even after the person dies, that, that, the, the identifying with your mind, even without doing anything, of one exit defines that as the exit and not the other thing. All that is very interesting. The question is, once you now have one thing defined as the exit, and that's Tameh and the other doors are Tahor, does that definition work retroactively? Right? You understand the scenario. You've got a house, there's a dead body in it, there are vessels under the threshold of the various exits. Once, initially, all the exits are Tameh. You open up the door, that one is Tameh, the others are Tahor. So that certainly works going forward. What about the things that were in the thresholds of the other exits before I opened up the door. Will it work retroactively or not? And that's a Bray request. And once one is defined as the exit, do I now look back and say that one was always going to be the exit? Okay? Was this, was this either, was it before you did this before the, the person died or if the person died? Um, no, we're not, uh, no, we, uh, let, let, let's not, no, it, it means you opened it after the person died. After the person died, what's the story retroactively of the things that were in the threshold? So we'll just read the one answer, I know we're a little bit over, but the Itmar Allah, Amar of Hoshea, 
that this debate of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, or the whole discussion here, is going forward. Which one is Tahor and which one is Tamei? Mikanu in only going forward. But what, once, even after you've defined an exit, that does not retroactively say that things that were in the thresholds before are Tahor. It doesn't retroactively define it as the exit. So the whole point of this is showing that Rabbi Oshaya holds Ein Breira. What you do doesn't retroactively define. And the question is, why does here he hold Ein Breira? But when it comes to the wine and the animal, he seems to hold Yesh Breira. If you split it on Yantav, then it's not limited by the overlapping of the Tchumim. Okay, so we will leave ourselves with that question. We will figure out how to reconcile it, but at least we see on the face of it, Rabbi Oshai here holds Ein Breira by the mace and the door, and by the case of the wine and the animal, he seems to hold Yesh Breira.